This is a sort of more lighthearted um, class today. Uh, one, I'm sure you'll recognize parts of it and parts of it you probably never heard of in your whole life. So this that's, that kind of makes it fun. When we stopped last week, Cyrus of Persia was building this big empire. He had conquered and absorbed the Medes. He was half Mede himself and had deep roots in the Median kingdom. But the um, Persian name of his entire dynasty is the Achaemenid, Achaemenid dynasty. Um, but they don't use that word in the Bible. In the Bible, his empire is referred to collectively as the Medes and the Persians. So all of that is shown in yellow here. And uh, as we begin this week, Cyrus has recently conquered the Lydian, shown in dark blue. We're in Daniel chapter five. We, we kind of skip back and forth in Daniel uh, to be able to get it chronologically. So we're, we're, we moved backwards to Daniel chapter five. The Babylonian empire in dark green is under increasing pressure, as you can see. Um, they are right now, they're ruled by their regent, Belshazzar, and they have an absent or maybe uh, returned but weak King Nabonidus. Um, storm clouds are on the horizon. So what does the regent Belshazzar do? He has a party with a thousand of his closest friends, of course. During the banquet, he orders gold and silver goblets that his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem be brought in so everyone can drink from the fancy gold and silverware. Now, when the story refers to Nebuchadnezzar as Belshazzar's father, that is, you know, clearly not to be taken literally. We know that Belshazzar is the son of Nabonidus, and Nabonidus is not even a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. Nabonidus seized the throne from Nebuchadnezzar's grandson in a coup. So instead, we take the term father here to mean that Belshazzar is a successor to Nebuchadnezzar. He holds the ancestral throne of Nebuchadnezzar. He likes to be linked to the glory of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and we also know that although the story calls Belshazzar the king, he was never actually king. He was only the regent during the 10 years Nabonidus was gone. Nevertheless, so-called King Belshazzar has the holy vessels brought into the party, and as the revelers drink from the gold and silver goblets of Yahweh, they give praise to their own idols of wood and stone and metal. Suddenly, a human hand appears and begins writing on the wall. Belshazzar turns pale, and his knees start knocking in fear. The disembodied hand writes words on the wall, but no one can read or understand them. Quickly, Belshazzar calls for all his magi, astrologers and diviners and wizards, and he says, whoever can read this writing will be made the third highest ruler in the land. He will be clothed in purple and a gold chain will be placed around his neck. We know why he says third highest. That's because Nabonidus is first and Belshazzar is second. So the only play, the highest place Belshazzar can give away is the third highest in the kingdom. Well, that's some pretty good incentive. And the Magi do their best to read the words, but they cannot. At this, Belshazzar begins to grow faint with fear. But then the queen, who remains nameless in the story, enters the banquet hall and says, do not be alarmed. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. Your father, Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief over all the magi. His name is Daniel, and he can interpret dreams and solve difficult riddles. Summon Daniel, and he will tell you what these words mean. And so Daniel is brought in. He is clearly retired from his post as head of the Magi, since he didn't come when they were first called. But he must still live at court. Looking at the timelines, I'd guess he's probably around 70 years old at this point, something like that. Belshazzar repeats his offer of highest honors and huge rewards. 
But Daniel tells Belshazzar to keep his rewards or give them to someone else. Nevertheless, Daniel says, I will tell you what these words mean. You, Belshazzar, have been as proud and arrogant as your father, Nebuchadnezzar, was. I think Daniel might be throwing some serious shade here by using the term father. You have not learned anything from the time he was stripped of his glory and ate grass like the beasts of the field. You have not humbled yourself, even though you know all of this. Instead, you have glorified yourself above the king of heaven. You have praised every God except the God who holds your life in his hands. You and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have drunk from God's holy vessels taken from his temple. Therefore, it is God himself who has sent the hand to write these words. And these are the words. Mene, mene, tekel parsin. So I want to stop here and give you some context. This part of Daniel, in fact, pretty much all of uh, chapters two through seven are not written in Hebrew, but are written in Aramaic. It's a language very similar to Hebrew that is becoming the common language around this time of the exile. Aramaic is one of the languages Jesus speaks. And here we see it just beginning to appear in the written stories of the Bible. I checked several scholarly sources on this, of course, and by far the consensus is that these three words are Aramaic terms used in trade. Given that, I have no idea why no one could read the words. The story says the Magi could neither read nor understand them. And that makes me think this story may be another one to be taken with a grain of salt. We need to be looking for the gift because the wrapping paper may have been embellished here. The first word, mene, we'll run into frequently in the Bible. In Hebrew, it's called the mina, and it is a coin. Tekel in Hebrew is the shekel. You recognize that one for sure. It's a common weight used in trade. And parsin is the half shekel, a half weight. But that doesn't get us very far. I mean, what could the names of these three common measures have to do with Belshazzar and God? But Daniel knows. Daniel tells Belshazzar, Mene Mene means God has numbered the days of your reign and it has come to an end. Tekel means you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And Parsim means your kingdom has been divided and will be given to the Medes and the Persians. You'd think Belshazzar would fall to his knees in repentance, fearful for his life. But nope, he does not. Belshazzar completely ignores Daniel's message and instead has Daniel dressed in purple against his wishes, a golden chain hung on his neck, and he promotes him to the third highest ruler in the, in the kingdom. Fat lot of good that does Daniel, though, for that very night. So the story goes, the palace is attacked by the Medes and the Persians, and Belshazzar is slain. And Darius the Mede becomes ruler of Babylon at the age of 62. Now, the story is a little out of sync here. Babylon does, in fact, fall to the Medes and the Persians. But by the time that happens, Nabonidus has definitely come back. So perhaps this is poetic license on the part of the storyteller? At any rate, um, at the time of the fall, the year is 539 BCE. And so, just as Jeremiah prophesied, the kingdom of Babylon falls after the reign of Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. There is one other problem with this story, though. No one knows quite who this conqueror Darius the Mede is. There is no such person in the historical records. We do know 
that Cyrus the Great conquers Babylon in 539 BCE, taking it from Nabonidus, who has returned to the throne, in name at least. So could Darius be another name for Cyrus? Some scholars think perhaps Darius is a Median throne name for Cyrus. Others think Darius was a high-ranking governor or court official appointed by Cyrus. You can, you can, you know, interpret this either way. Um, I, for purposes of this class, I uh, tend to go with Darius being a king governor put in place by Cyrus, but there's some places later where they, where they sound like the same person. So, you know, think what you want. I don't really think it makes a difference to the story. So King Darius appoints 120 officials to rule his kingdom, and he sets three governors over them, one of whom is Daniel. And Daniel excels in every way, to the extent that King Darius makes plans to put Daniel in charge of the entire kingdom. This, of course, causes all sorts of palace intrigue, but the other officials can't dig up any dirt on Daniel at all. And they realize they're not going to be able to trap Daniel unless they figure out some way to force him to do something against the law of his God. So they get together and go to King Darius as a group saying, oh, King Darius, may you live forever. We have all agreed you should issue a law saying that no one can pray to any God except you for the next 30 days. Anyone who refuses such an edict must be thrown into the lion's den. King Darius doesn't see any reason to deny their request. It seems harmless enough. And the officials ask him to make it an official edict in writing so that by law it cannot be changed or rescinded. And so it is done. King Darius puts the edict in writing. It's not long before the word of the new edict reaches Daniel. He goes to his room where his window opens towards Jerusalem. Three times every day, Daniel has always retired to his room to kneel at this window and give thanks to God. Knowing that he's taking his life in his hands, Daniel kneels at the window and prays. He is, of course, caught by the men who have plotted against him. The officials go as a group to King Darius and tell him that Daniel has paid no attention to the written edict. King Darius is greatly distressed. He had not foreseen this consequence. And furthermore, since the edict is in writing, by law it cannot be countermanded. King Darius spends the rest of the day trying to figure a way around this terrible dilemma. He does not want to have Daniel executed. But in the end, there is no solution. And King Darius is forced to order that Daniel be thrown into the lion's den. The king says to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve faithfully, rescue you. And so Daniel is thrown into the lion's den and a great stone is placed over the mouth of the den and the king and the nobles seal the closure with their signets so no one can move the stone away and rescue Daniel. King Darius is terribly distressed and spends a sleepless night anguishing over Daniel's fate. Will Daniel's God be able to save him from the lions? At first morning light, King Darius dresses and hurries to the lion's den. The stone is rolled away and the king calls into the den, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God rescued you from the lions? And Daniel, down in that terrible dark place, answers, may you live forever, O king. Yes, my God sent an angel to shut the mouths of the lions. I am not hurt, for I am innocent in God's sight, and I have never done you any wrong, your majesty. Now, just a note here that we've seen that God tends to do these sorts of miracles 
When a pagan king sets himself up as being more powerful than God, God seems to do these big miracles when it's necessary to demonstrate to the people that there is no other king but God. And that makes sense in this story, too. But when it says that Daniel is saved because he's innocent, that's a little off the mark. Lots of innocent people die in horrific ways. But thankfully, the author corrects his theological error in the very next sentence. King Darius orders Daniel to be lifted from the lion's den. And sure enough, there is no mark on him for, the author says, he had trusted God to protect him. Now, that's more like it. The point is to show God's holiness and power to the people, not for God to show up to prove our own innocence. That's a that's an important concept to jot down and think about. It's these miracles are for the purpose of showing God's holiness and power to the people, not for God to show up to prove our innocence or to make us look good. King Darius orders that the men who conspired against Daniel be thrown into the lion's den themselves, along with their women and children. And before their bodies even reach the floor, the lions devour them. Then King Darius writes to all the people of the world, saying, All people must tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. His kingdom will have no end. He rescues and he works mighty wonders. He has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And so it says, Daniel prospers during the reign of Cyrus the Persian and the reign of Darius, which makes it sound like they're two different people, one a Mede and one a Persian. Um, Like I said, I don't think it makes it really much of a difference to the story. So now we get to some more really interesting stuff. Uh, You may know that there are books and passages that are in some Bibles and not in others. This kind of debated material has come to be called the Apocrypha, which is a Greek word meaning hidden. You may also hear the term deuterocanonical, which is another way of referring to various combinations of this material. Different streams of the Judeo and Christian religions include or exclude different books and passages. I find it easiest to think of concentric circles. Generally speaking, the green dot in the middle would represent the material accepted as canon by the Jews and by the Protestants, while the purple and blue circles would be the additional material that's come to be called the Apocrypha. The Catholics think include this kind of aqua chunk, while the Eastern Orthodox Christians and other Christian streams in the East accept an additional layer of apocryphal material beyond what the Catholics do. We won't cover that additional Eastern material, the purple stuff, but we will, we will cover most of the apocryphal material that is included as canon by the Catholics, that aqua part. We'll cover the material in the same way we've done everything else, by picking it up as it occurs in the storyline. Meanwhile, if you're interested in digging, in digging further, you can type in deuterocanonical in your search engine and have fun following the rabbit trails. So where did this material come from and why is there such a kerfluffle over it? Well, remember that there is no such thing as bound books in this period of history. The books we're talking about are collections of scrolls, and there is no overruling authority determining what is canon and what is not. During this time between the exile and the time of Christ, there is wide agreement on which scrolls constitute the Torah, those first five books from Genesis through Deuteronomy, and there is wide agreement on the prophets both the major prophets and the minor prophets. But the rest of the scrolls are definitely still under discussion. 
For one thing, many of them are only just being written down during this time. This is the third section of the Hebrew Bible. Eventually, it it eventually becomes canon and is called the writings. Um, So so this part, even though I've got Apocrypha up there at the top, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings are not Apocrypha. They're, They're exactly the same as what the Protestants would consider um, part of their Bible. Uh, so this is kind of the core, that that middle core, green core of, of the circles that I showed you a second ago. But one thing to notice is um, when Je- if you if you are familiar with the New Testament, there's a part where Jesus says um, that he, he uh, doesn't come to change any of the law and the prophets or the the um, and he talks about how fulfilling the command, the greatest command to love fulfills, you know, fulfills the law. He's talking about the, the law and the prophets, the Torah and the prophets here. The writings during his time are still a little mushy. Uh, the writings include books like Song of Songs, Ruth, and even Daniel who is not included in the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. Daniel is included in the writings. Um, Now, Jesus is familiar with the writings, as you'll see. I'm sure you're totally confused, but what matters is that you understand how fluid this all was over many centuries and how the Jews and each branch of Christianity made different decisions about what went into their respective scriptural canon And they did it over a long period of time. And here's the key. With each turnover in world power, there was a change in language. We've already seen some of the shift in our texts. The common language during the exile began to shift from Hebrew to Aramaic. Then, after Alexander the Greek, it shifted to Greek. Then, after the spread of the Roman Empire, the language shifted again, this time to Latin. Now, that shift to Greek was a huge one. Greek is nothing at all like Hebrew or Aramaic, which are related to each other. And so it was natural that an attempt would be made to translate the body of the Hebrew scrolls into the new common language of the people, the Greek. And so over a period of time in the second and third centuries BCE, so this is a few hundred years after the time that um, Daniel got thrown in the lion's den, but it's still a few hundred years before Jesus, Jewish scholars developed a Greek version of the Jewish scrolls. This Greek version was called the Septuagint, LXX for short, in honor of the rather embellished tradition that it was the work of 70 scholars. This Septuagint version of the Hebrew Bible included the Torah and the prophets, but it also included the writings, which in that version also included the scrolls and the passages we now call the Apocrypha. So it had all, the Septuagint had all of it in it. The the Greek Septuagint became wildly popular and is, in fact, the version of the Hebrew Bible that is widely quoted by Jesus and the New Testament writers. And we know that because we can see uh, there are slight wording differences between the original Hebrew Masoretic text and the same passages in the Septuagint. And it was the passages from the with the Septuagint wording that Jesus and the other New Testament writers quoted. So it was not until later, after the time of Christ, that the writings section of the Hebrew Bible was solidified to exclude the books of the Apocrypha. The Christian Bible of the time still included them, although debates were raging over the material. It wasn't until the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s when the Protestants chose to exclude the Apocrypha, and we began to have Protestant Bibles without the Apocrypha and Catholic Bibles with the Apocrypha. And just for the record, 
that King James Bible that is so fervently embraced in certain conservative Protestant Christian circles, it included the Apocrypha for the first 50 years after its debut in 1611. Although there are a few theological sticking points that contributed to the decisions, the single biggest delineator in all these denominational choices ended up being the language the books were written in. Both Jews and Protestants rejected any books not originally written in Hebrew. That's where they drew the line. And since much of the Apocrypha was written down during the time of the Greek Empire, those books were largely written in Greek. So they were automatically excluded by the Jews and the Protestants. What is interesting is that we now know that some of the Apocrypha may have been originally written in Hebrew after all and just copied into the Greek. But those scrolls or fragments of scrolls were not discovered until well after these decisions were made. So given this context, let's think about the book of Daniel. It's no wonder that the Jews stuck the book of Daniel in the writings rather than the prophets. Not only is it theologically, obviously, a horse of a different color compared to the other prophets, but large chunks of it are written in Aramaic, not Hebrew, and it was written after the exile. But Aramaic is very close to Hebrew, and the book of Daniel was widely considered canon by the Jews during the time of Christ. It is still considered canon by Jews and is part of the canon of all streams of Christianity today. Uh, Daniel very Daniel was a big deal in his time, and his writings were preserved as canon pretty much from the get-go. So if you're a, a Protestant, the book of Daniel in your Bible ends with chapter 12. If you look in your Bible, it will stop. It chapter 12 is the last, last chapter. But in non-Protestant Christian Bibles, the Catholics and the East, there are two more chapters. They are apocryphal chapters. Chapter 13 is the story of Susanna, a virtuous wife who refuses the sexual advances of two elders of Israel. They gang up to testify that they saw her having an affair um, when really all, what she did was rebuff them. So they made this story up about her and they let her, they testify against her together. And, she, and, and as she is led off to execution for adultery that she didn't commit, a young Daniel stops them. Daniel has the two elders separated and questioned closely as to the details of the tryst they supposedly witnessed, like where in the garden were they and what tree were they under and stuff like that. Well, there's the elder stories do not match and Susanna is saved and the elders are put to death. Chapter 14 of Daniel is set during the time of Cyrus the Great. And it and it's actually two different stories. The first half of uh, chapter 14 is the story of Daniel and the dragon. The second half of chapter 14 is, a, is an alternative version of Daniel in the lion's den. So we'll take a look at Daniel chapter 14 in our breakout groups, and you'll have a chance to examine some apocryphal material for yourself. So did you enjoy that? Had any of you heard it, read these stories before? No. I did yeah. as a teenager. I, I remember from when I was a kid, well, teenager, um, about when you said Daniel was only in the lion's den one night. I was like, wait a minute. I thought he was there for six nights. And now I know why I thought that. Oh, cool. <laughs> How cool is that? <laughs> Yeah. So in yeah, that I was sense, telling my group that that I was excited that we're going to actually be looking at the apocrypha because I never have read it before. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool, and you know there will be some that I cover like Susanna where I just say, "Blap, this is what's in it. Go read it." You know, but the but you cannot get from the Hebrew Bible to the New Testament without a big chunk of the apocrypha telling the story. 
So it will be, we will spend some time in, in that specifically Mac, the Maccabees. Um, but uh, um, it's, it's fascinating. And this is your kind of your first glimpse of the flavor of these stories. Um, so it's kind of, kind of interesting. So the first story is Daniel in the lion's den and how Daniel um uh, is thrown into the lion's den because he got the king's permission to kill the the dragon everybody was worshiping, but not without attacking him and um, with swords or clubs. And and the king says, "Yeah, absolutely. If you can do that, you know he's not a god." And and um, so Daniel basically poisons him, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and the people get furious and have Daniel thrown in the lion's den. And then there's this little weird little bit about a guy named Habakkuk who is out in the field somewhere. Now this Habakkuk is not the Habakkuk in the Bible. This Habakkuk clearly lives somewhere in the vicinity, you know, that he could get to Babylon theoretically. Um, Also the Habakkuk in the Bible is like a hundred years earlier. So just so you know, so he would not be, even if it was him, he would not be carrying meals out to the field workers. So it just wouldn't work. So um, this Habakkuk, you know, says, ah, I've never been to Babylon. I don't even know how to get there. I wouldn't be able to find the lion's skin. I don't think so. And then, and the angel just yanks him up by the neck of his shirt and drags him to Babylon, drops him down. He feeds Daniel. Angel takes him and plops him down in the field. We never hear what happened to Habakkuk. <laughs> but sounds like alien abduction i know right <laughs> he, he, he goes he goes back home but with no food yeah. <laughs> he's probably not very popular <laughs> the field workers are saying where's our food yeah exactly. yeah an angel took it an angel took it <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly and so you know daniel survived because he's been fed the king comes and rescues him and the ending of the story is exactly the same so jews and protestants don't consider this story part of their bible catholics do eastern branches of christianity orthodox branches of christianity they are they are christians we're all christians you know um, in all these different branches of Christianity, but we're not studying the same Bible. So, and the line seems to be in, have been drawn along the fact that this story is in Greek and seems to be, have been a later edition. Um, so why would so much of Christianity, perhaps the majority of Christianity, think this story should be included? We talked about how there was this deity that they were all worshiping. And Daniel says, you know, this deity should not be worshiped. And God assists in terminating that arrangement. And Daniel comes out of this being okay. And it just shows God's glory. So it's kind of like you're saying that the kernel, the gift underneath the wrapping paper is the same gift. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and um, it's, it's another example, it seems, of like with the two creation stories and the two flood stories that are so obvious that are included in the canon. Um that this is another case where the exact facts were not the important thing, but the important thing was the story of God's deliverance and showing up false gods to be false gods. And it makes you wonder if this story had been included in the Protestant stream of Christianity which is where we, that is the only place that we find this attempt to make all the pieces match up exactly. They have to be the same. You know, it's only that branch. If we had included that, 
would there have been the jumping through hoops to make the two versions of the story match up? Like we see with the other alternative stories that we see that you mentioned. So let me see if I heard you correctly, Gail. You're saying that this is the only attempt to make things consistent, that there was tolerance for multiple versions, such as the Genesis story, but not tolerance for multiple versions here. What I No, what I'm saying is within different branches of Christianity. So the Eastern branches are much more likely to tolerate differing stories. And they have both of these stories in their canon. Well, the Christians do have the differing, have differing stories in other parts of the Bible. Pardon me? Protestants do have differing stories in other parts of the Bible, such as the creation story. Yes, but there are elements within Protestantism, not all Protestants, but there is this very conservative slice of Protestant that is quite powerful, that does insist those are not two different stories. That insists that the two different stories of Genesis are not two different stories. Correct. That does require a lot of gymnastics. Mm-hmm. And there are <laughs> other places where we've seen that details don't match up here to there, you know? Mm-hmm. Do you think that, do you and think they that make the, them match up? They have a, a storyline and an, a, a quote explanation as to why it's all really the same thing. Do, do you think that the reason that the Protestant version of the Bible was okay with including those is that they were written in Hebrew and were part of the, the Torah. And so they felt that there was this long tradition that could be tied back to original writings Yes. Yes. And, and so, and, and, and if you go back and read, um, you'll see like Martin Luther, when he's doing his translations, he's having problems with chunks of the passages and thinks something should be included and something shouldn't. And um, so the scholars in the Protestant line definitely understood (laughs) what we're talking about. They understood these differences and Protestants as a whole, I'm not saying all Protestants think that all these pieces have to be taken literally and match up and be the same thing without contradiction. Mm. That, that whole idea of without contradiction is a narrow part of Christianity, but it is a big part of Christianity where I grew up in the Southern United States. And, and I think it's spreading through the rest of the United States. Exactly. It is a it is a current event. <laughs> yeah. And and so I'm 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 wanting to tease that out for you. So well, the the inspired word um I'm gonna kind of ramble for just a bit here. I I I think the fact that the the line was drawn with language um is important important in that how could that have been the inconsistency is the language that's where the problem is because if these were written down by the people who were there who experienced them as told to them by God how could there possibly have been Greek writing contemporaneously. Yeah, there couldn't have been. Right. So I think that 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 reasoning makes some sense and I think speaks to this issue of literalism and inspired and infallible and that sort of thing. Right. It was an attempt and a, and as good a way as any of trying to say, well, we don't know, but these are going to be closer than those. These are going to be closer to the original than those. Yeah, I think there's sense to it. Yeah. Wasn't okay. Wasn't the Septuagint brought about by all the clerics that were put in the caves 
and all came out with the same writings. Right. That's the that's the myth. Yes. Okay. And then, then they were all, they were all put in different rooms and they all translated and came up with the same exact Greek translation. That was like the myth. Yeah. So then they blessed the Greek. Right. <laughs> right. So then that Greek, the thing is with the Greek, they were translating from the um, uh, Hebrew, clearly. Okay. Uh, and they translated into the Greek and they then included some of these things that were originally in the Greek, or, or at, at least as far as we can tell, the, the apocryphal parts. And that version became the Bible that the, the, the Greek speaking world knew. Um, it's like when, when um, by, the Bible was translated into Latin you know, many years later, or when the Bible was translated into English, it's just the Bible gets translated into the common language. It's one of the first things that gets translated. You know, it's valuable to us. And I had a question. Didn't Martin Luther have a helper? I forget his name. And he used different sources than what Martin Luther did. So you got a little mishmash there too. Yeah, as we move forward in history beyond Christ, then what starts to happen is people translate into the common language. So you would have um, Jerome translating in in Latin, doing what's called the version that's called the Latin Vulgate. And and then that being used as a basis for later translations into German or English, you know, so then we get layers upon layers upon layers. And what, where that gets even more complicated is sometimes the person who translated into say the Latin or whatever had access to scrolls that were older and more original, not the originals, but closer to the original than what we have now because their sources got destroyed in the interim. See, that's why I don't have a hard time accepting this as part of our our scriptures because there's so many things even that more modern archaeologists and scribes have found that reinforce these messages right so then Um, you have to then you but then when you say that you um and donna makes a good point donna's typing over here on the side which i i can't keep up always but um she just said that uh, people back then were not generally able to read and that in some places it was a way to keep control you know which is absolutely true Um, so when was the new testament actually written it was each of the books was written at a different time so when we get to it but it was after well after the time of christ none of it was written during the time of christ it was written after his death by um people who knew them and then people who knew them, you know, and some people who did, you know, who were like, we don't even know, like whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, we don't even know who that was. So um, that kind of thing. And then, uh, and then three or 400 years later, those various scrolls are kind of all jumbled up. You can imagine like a big pile of scrolls, sources people have, and some of them include other apocryphal texts like the you know the gospel of mary and the you know infant gospel of the infant jesus and you know there's just all these other kind of books out there and so there's this big christianity has to go through a process of deciding well which ones are canon for us and they had a series of meetings at which there was um, much blood and intrigue associated with them, uh, murder and mayhem over the years and in the 300s, 400s, right around in there after Christ and had those series of meetings and just hammered out which what it means to be a Christian. This is where we get our Nicene Creed from, the Apostles' Creed, these kind of places, these statements of here's what it means to be a Christian they also picked, here are the books, <laughs> you know, um, uh, based on suggestions of some of the respected leaders of the faith at the time. Except that 
then when the Protestants came along, there had to be another decision that not all the books that were canonized back in the 300s and 400s deserved to be in the Bible. Exactly. Um, Martin Luther had some very strong opinions. Yeah, it's funny. I have a friend who I had been sharing about your Bible study with, and she had asked me if you would ever touch on the Gospel of Mary. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And there you go. It just happened. We will actually touch on the Apocryphal books, some of them, you know, there's too many for me to do all of them. And and many of them are not included in anybody's canon. Um, The ones that tend to get included are the ones that are whole stories. Many of the ones that we have, like the Gospel of Mary actually has, you know, you can go online, you can read it, it's not very long. And, um, and we will cover it. Um, But many of these other Gospels, um, quote, Gospels, we only have fragments of. So yeah, they, so, they so, be included. So so here's a question for you, and and it probably has to do with with control. Um, you had translation from the Hebrew to the Aramaic to the Greek to the Latin, and then the church leadership decided that it was too dangerous to once again make. A translation into the language of the people that we had to stick with the latin so when you had people trying to translate you know during that time of like uh john john wycliffe in um england, in england and, yes mm-hmm. and and, the, and um martin Ballard, luther is a the german and yep. they were burned at the stake for heresy for trans for doing exactly what had been done before, but suddenly the church decided, no, we got to lock in at the Latin and say that this is the only authoritative version of the Bible. But there's no real reason right. to do that except power. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I was wondering, um, are there any other religious traditions? current or former, you know, not, not surviving to present times where it was so important to codify, canonize, to have a canon that was approved. Yes. Or is the the one that comes immediately to mind is Islam. Which is is still in the Abrahamic tradition. Yes, it is. But how important are, is a canon to Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism, um, to the Greek mythology, to the Roman mythology? I'm not an expert in those areas. There are holy writings, you know, that they, that they rely on um, in the Uh East, in those uh, various religions. And I cannot, I'm not qualified to answer that question. I do know about Islam and I know about the Jews and I know about Christianity and I have been educated in the others, but it was like a survey course. (laughs) What I find interesting is, is that the Jews have maintained consistently a solid value um, of making a point to include conflicting stories and viewpoints. There and have go ahead and also to discuss and ponder and argue the meaning instead of to insist upon what the gift is. Yes. Exactly. And they are perfectly willing to come to two different conclusions, you know, and just leave it at that. And, uh, and they codify that that's, you know, as part of the, the, the Mishnah around, which is a big, you know, that body of, 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 of holy knowledge that they have is, is these kinds of discussions around what does this mean? And the Midrash is, is kind of more tied to the scripture itself. And it's more commentary on the scripture. The Mishnah is kind of a bigger, broader 
um, sort of stories and commentaries and things. And so it was just, it's, I think it has helped preserve, it strengthened Judaism. It has helped preserve them. It has made them more inclusive. They're more willing to, to let there be differences of opinion, you know, on the other on the other end, you've got Islam and the idea that um, when the Prophet Muhammad received um, the what becomes the Quran, he he receives it. It is transmitted only orally until until they realize that the people who have memorized it are going to be dying off, and then they're not going to have it anymore. And so they have to write it down so it never gets changed because it is a word for word for word translation of the original. I mean, it's a memorization of the original. They actually, in fact, do not believe that unless you're speaking the words in the original language, it's not really the Quran. Okay, so these translations are lesser um, because they they memorized it word for word, for word, for word. So there you have kind of like on the other end of the spectrum, what I think many Christians wish we had, <laughs> you know, but, we, but we don't. <laughs> and it did come from one person by the hand of God straight to him. You know, it's exactly what um, the, that particular section, segment of Christianity is looking for. It's not what we have. We have the Judeo tradition which is a lot freer and um, a lot more fun in my opinion. I have a a niece um, and her husband who come from a very fundamentalist perspective. And um, in fact, she, she grew up pretty fundamentalist and then married somebody who was even more fundamentalist. Um, And they tried to argue with me one day that the only authoritative translation of the bible the true translation of the bible is the king james i know and when i question the fallacy of that argument of the thousands of christians who came before king james and all of the people who have who speak up languages other than english does that mean that none of them are getting the truth and they had painted themselves into a corner where they had to say Yes, that's the fact. And then I brought up to my niece that her grandparents, my parents, were missionaries with Wycliffe Bible translators. And that we went in to an indigenous community that did not have their language written down. And my parents learned the language, wrote it down, created the alphabet, the grammar, and then did translation into their language and had to make cultural and linguistic accommodations in order for these stories to be understood by people who had no concept of ancient Hebrew anything. And they just had to approximate as closely as possible the stories, but in a context that these people would understand. And I asked my niece, "Do do you think that your grandfather was responsible for misleading an entire community of people and sending them to hell because he translated a, the Bible into their language. She couldn't answer that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I often have, I had a, a conversation with one of my friends that is the same way, fundamentalist, King James all the way, old King James, not even the new King James. And I'm like, you didn't realize who King James was. <laughs> Just do a little <laughs> Googling on that. Yeah. And, 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 it's like there are many Bible translations out there that are not King James. And just because it came into the English doesn't, you know, from the England to us. I said, what would the founding fathers say about all these people claiming on to the English, you know, the King James Bible as the only Bible? It's like we had this little thing called a revolutionary war that we wouldn't have one religion. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's why also why I wanted to point out that even the King James Bible has changed. It used to have the Apocrypha in it, so so there you go. But um, yeah, I wish that, I'd known that little detail when I was having this conversation. I know you. that's a little known <laughs> oddity that you only learn in my class. So there you go. That's but, right. 
<laughs> no, it's it's just fascinating the details that you find when you do this research. So that there's another story that I put in your story guide, which is the first half of Daniel, which is the story of Daniel and the idol bell. And this, this idol, um, they were had a room and a temple, and he he uh, the king worships there. That they bring the priests put food and drink out for this idol every day. Every day that idol drink, eats the food and drinks the wine. That's amazing. And so Daniel says, like, this is horse patooey. You know, this is not, <laughs> no, that thing's just a block of, of bronze and clay. I mean, what are you thinking, king? And, and the king says, well, we'll prove it. We'll, you know, put the food and the drink in there and then we'll lock the door and I'll seal it with my seal. And, and then we'll see if that idol eats that stuff. And so, um, so the priest put in all the food and the drink, and then they have to leave. And after they leave, Daniel goes in while the king is watching and scatters a fine layer of ash all over the floor. King shuts the door, seals it up. Next day, food and drink are gone, but there's footprints all over the floor. Come to find out the priest had a trap door under the table. So, um, uh, it was another one that got excluded because it was um, in Greek and, uh, but it was included and is still included in many of the Bibles. Why would this one be included? Would you include it or would you not include it? We talked about how it showed the, the, um, hypocrisy of this idol and the priests getting their families involved, their children, their wives, and that they were pulling the wool over the king's eyes and they went to such lengths with it. And so we, we thought it was a very good story to have in there because even after they were exposed, they still tried to claim that it had happened, you know? And here we are with facts. Daniel is with facts saying, yeah, no, idols not eating, idols not walking around with different size feet eating the food. Yeah, well, and, and I think, you know, if we if we think about, you know, should it, be included or not it seems like just if you're if you're coming at this from a, a factual quote-unquote perspective this story seems more believable <laughs> than the story of Isaiah and the prophets of Baal of Baal yeah Elijah uh-huh yeah Elijah yeah mm-hmm. and the and the drenching the drowning right. of the, the lightning the, and the, all that yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the the burn, you know, burning the stones to ash and everything with this incredible fire. Um, this story of catching the priests and their entire families in this deception and lying to the king's face about it is a much more human story. Maybe that was the problem. It was too human. Um, well, it was a lot like the story of Susanna. Same same yeah. kind of deal. Yeah. Right. Um, seems and I mean, it's I very would, similar to the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. Yeah. One of yes. the things we talked about was how how this is a relevant story for today's world. Even you know, if if you're preaching something that's not true. And people want to see the facts, but they still believe, you know, they still believe until you can present them with the facts. Well, and it's a, and it would be, it would certainly preach, wouldn't it? To, to talking about, um, you know, if you see something that does not work, you know, with what you know about God, you know this lump of clay and bronze is not God. It cannot be God. So don't believe it's God. 
there's use your mind. There has to be another explanation that that would preach in, in today's world. Right. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I don't know what the point is other than to let you know that the edges of the Bible are, are somewhat fluid from tradition to tradition that, um, that there are stories out there that have value that may or may not have been included in your particular version of the Bible. Um, there are stories out there that may or may not have val value that are um, included in, that are not included in anybody's story of the Bible. Our own autobiographies are not included in the Bible, but our autobiographies are a witness of God's work in our lives. And that's what the Bible is. So I want you to remember the biographies, those conversion stories are uh, a really important part of uh, some parts of Christianity's <laughs> tests of faith, testimonies, evangelism. I mean, they're used in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so um, I think what we're, I'm trying to, to give you here and to point out is how strong the stream of life is that flows from the throne of God, that the Bible is one way that is expressed. Um, it, it, it is, and this is, it is not the only way the Holy Spirit is living and breathing and moving in the world. Um, and do not be afraid. And I'll see you next week. Thank you, Gail. Bye. <laughs> Thanks a lot.